Good morning again, and welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Gloria in excelsis Deo, et in terra pax, hominibus bonae voluntatis, laudamus te, benedicimus te, adoramus te, glorificamus te, gratias agimas to be, propter magnum gloriam tuam, domine Deus, rex celestis, Deus pater, omnipotens. That was a prayer commonly said in a Latin mass of the Roman Catholic Church. And for the record, I don't claim to know Latin. I was simply reading off of a page. But in English, that prayer says this. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to people of goodwill. We praise you, we bless you, we adore you. We glorify you. We give you thanks for your great glory, Lord God, Heavenly King, O God, Almighty Father. Now that is a prayer that we Protestants can endorse. It gives glory to God and can encourage and build up believers. The words themselves are thoughtful and doctrinally sound. There may even be a certain beauty of reading the prayer in Latin, a beautiful language in its own right. Now, these days, it's not so easy to find a Roman Catholic church that offers the Latin Mass. The Latin Mass is seen as much more traditional than the current form seen most regularly, where the priest speaks in the common language of the congregation. But in Martin Luther's day, Mass was primarily said in Latin. The church services were held in Latin. In the world of the Reformers, Latin simply was the language of the church. And as beautiful as it may sound at times, there's one big problem with that. The common churchgoer usually couldn't understand it. Often the only people who knew Latin were the clergy and the educated, meaning that your regular, run of the mill, blue collar congregant probably didn't understand it. Even some of the priests were guilty of not knowing the language. They just memorized the right words. And on top of that, the official Bible used by the Roman Catholic Church in that day was in Latin, known as the Vulgate. Bibles were less accessible to common people. And the Roman Catholic Church discouraged private Bible study anyway, even for monks like Martin Luther. So in the years leading up to the Reformation, very few people had Bibles. On top of that, if you could somehow get one, it was probably written in a language that you didn't know how to read. And finally, when you went to church on Sunday morning, the one time that you might hope to learn something about God's word, you probably couldn't understand what the priest was saying. You can see how in this world, even in the years before Martin Luther, people began to develop a hunger for the Bible. And this hunger set much of the stage for the Reformation, and specifically the fourth sola we discussed this morning. Sola scriptura, meaning scripture alone. So open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 6. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we go any further, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this incredible gift of your word. 
as we're going to discuss, and as we know, not everyone has access to your word the way we do. We have a great privilege and a great responsibility to read this word that you've given us. We are in awe of the fact that you have revealed yourself to us, that you want to be known by us, you want to be in relationship with us. We don't have to guess about who you are or what your character is like or what your desires are. We know what those things are because you've shared that with us in Scripture. So, Father, as we read the Scripture this morning, as we read the Holy Spirit and being adopted as sons and daughters in your family, I pray that we would read it with great awe, that we would read it with great humility, that we would be just as moved by the truths of Scripture and the truth of the Gospel as we were when we first believed it. Thank you for this church. Thank you for these people. I pray that what we say and what we do would be honoring to you this morning. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the tide began to shift long before Martin Luther actually stepped onto the scene. That hunger for the Bible continued to develop. People wanted the Word of God in their own language. So, for example, a man named John Wycliffe came around in England. In the late 1300s, about 150 years before Martin Luther came on the scene, Wycliffe became dissatisfied and disillusioned with the Roman Catholic Church, and even more specifically, the Pope. The corruption and the hypocrisy that he saw in the church of his day drove him straight to the Latin Bible, which he then began translating into English. Wycliffe wanted the common man to read the Bible in his own language. He wanted the common man to become less dependent upon the Pope or the Church for understanding. Now, of course, the Roman Catholic Church didn't like this very much, so they labeled Wycliffe a heretic and burned him at the stake, but not before he translated the entire New Testament into English. And then after Wycliffe, a man named John Huss came around and adopted many of his same ideas. Huss raised up preachers to deliver sermons straight from the Bible, in the language of their hearers. But Huss was imprisoned and killed in 1415. And then around 1450, a man named Johannes Gutenberg invented his printing press, meaning that books could be produced at a much faster pace and for much less money. By then, the hunger for God's word had only grown, and the weaknesses of the Roman Catholic Church's Latin translation were becoming more apparent. And then we get to Martin Luther. After he was excommunicated in 1521, one of Luther's first projects was translating the Bible from the original Hebrew and Greek, not the Latin, Hebrew and Greek, into common German. He did this in hiding having been officially declared an outlaw. Luther finished up the New Testament in about 11 weeks, and his translation was the best anyone had seen up to that point, and he transformed the German language. Others followed in Luther's footsteps, men like Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin in Switzerland, William Tyndale in England. Zwingli and Calvin were both known for preaching directly through books of the Bible, In that day, many thought it was unheard of. William Tyndale came along and improved Wycliffe's English translation from years earlier. Tyndale was strangled 
and burned at the stake in 1535, but not before he smuggled thousands of his English Bibles into the country. Now, if you look at the pages of history, you might find yourself wondering, why all this fuss over the Bible? Why were people willing to risk their lives just for the sake of reading it in their own language? Well, contrary to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, they had become convinced that Scripture alone was the primary authority for the collective body of Christ and the individual believer. Not the Pope, not councils, or any other fallible men. They had seen the failings of the popes and the councils and human teachers, and they longed for a better source of authority. They longed for a true source of authority. Martin Luther said, Scripture alone is the true Lord and Master of all writings and doctrine on earth. If that is not granted, what is Scripture good for? The more we reject it, the more we become satisfied with men's books and human teachers. When he stood before the Holy Roman Emperor in 1521, when Luther famously said, Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. He repeatedly emphasized the authority of Scripture. He said he was bound to the Scriptures he had quoted, and his conscience was captive to the Word of God. But what exactly did the Reformers mean when they said sola scriptura? Scripture alone. And why do we as Protestant Christians, 500 years later, still agree? And how should this conviction of Scripture alone, how should it shape our church? And how should it shape our individual lives? So let's read that passage we opened up to. Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 6. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Along with the Reformers, We believe that scripture alone is our primary authority for teaching and practice. Why is that? It's because even though everything else in creation comes and goes, God's word stands forever. It doesn't fade. It doesn't wither. It doesn't become outdated or irrelevant. Unlike the frail human beings of both Martin Luther's day and our day, God is not prone to corruption or contradiction or hypocrisy. Popes and councils, preachers and teachers, theologians and scholars rise and fall. And we do our best to teach things that are good and true and beautiful. Things in accordance with God's character and in accordance with God's desires. But we humans sometimes make mistakes. But scripture, on the other hand, doesn't. It alone is entirely trustworthy and without failing and without error because it comes from the very mouth of God. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 12. We read from 1 Timothy, 
2 Timothy is similar. Paul writing to a young pastor. And Paul tells Timothy that he has been persecuted. And that Timothy will be persecuted as well. Starting in verse 12, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We believe scripture is unlike any other writing in all of history and all of creation. There are other great works of literature that you absolutely should read, but scripture alone is inspired by God. Scripture is the one writing sufficient for our salvation. Scripture alone has the power to transform hearts and minds. This Bible that we read is not just a random collection of theological musings from a bunch of dead people. It's not just an interesting book of ancient history. It's not just another religious artifact. And it's certainly not just a book of entertaining stories. As Paul tells Timothy in the passage we just read, this book is God-breathed. It is a gift of God's grace, a product of the Holy Spirit himself, working through those who wrote it. And then Paul hits on the sufficiency of this book. He assures Timothy that he won't need to add his own thoughts to it or attempt to shore up any perceived weaknesses. Scripture would supply everything that Timothy needed, everything his church needed, and what you and I still need for maturity and godliness. Scripture is the one perfect record we have, the one perfect record of who God is and what he has done for us through Jesus Christ. And as long as we have that, as long as we have that testimony of the gospel, Paul says we have what we need. But this scripture has the power to change our hearts and change our minds as well. A couple weeks ago, we talked about Ezekiel 37, that passage in the Valley of Dry Bones. That passage where God raised dead bones to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And through Ezekiel preaching the word that God gave him to preach. In the parable of the sower, Jesus says, when the word takes root in the heart of one who hears it, That word bears fruit. This is not just another book. This is the inspired word of God himself. Now, if you've been a believer for any length of time, I hope this would sound at least somewhat familiar to you. The Bible is our primary authority collectively and individually. It's trustworthy, inspired, sufficient, and transformative. But where the rubber hits the road... If we really do believe all this stuff, what do you think this should look like? Well, a few things. Number one, it's the church's job to preach the word. Preaching was a massive focus of the Reformation. When you believe all this stuff about scripture, how can it not be? 
If you go back to 2 Timothy, starting in chapter 4, picking up right where we left off, Paul says this, chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now, to be totally honest with you, preaching has seen better days. It's often reduced to nothing more than empty moral teaching or shallow self-help or cheesy motivational speaking. Now, all those things are important. Moral teaching is important. Self-help can be helpful. And a reasonable dose of motivation or positive thinking can certainly do us some good. But truthfully, you can get that stuff at a seminar at the local library. You can get that stuff by watching a TED Talk or by reading a book by Dr. Phil. The thing that the church should be best at is delivering God's word to God's people, in season and out of season. And a church that doesn't take that responsibility seriously is doing a disservice to God, a disservice to its people, and a disservice to the world around it. Now that being said, Paul acknowledged that there will be times when some people don't want to hear Scripture preached. They prefer not to hear any scripture at all, or maybe prefer to hear twisted, twisted scripture to confirm what they already believe anyway, rather than challenging what it is they believe. But Paul's guidance is keep preaching. That's Timothy's job. That's the church's job. That's my job. So if your church doesn't take scripture seriously, especially on Sunday morning. Leave it and find a new one. And that includes this church. And I don't say that lightly, because there are all kinds of silly reasons that people leave churches. But the view of Scripture a church has, that is absolutely crucial. It's the church's job to preach Scripture. But then on top of that, it's all of our jobs, and better yet, our privilege, to read God's Word. One of the teachings of the Reformation that isn't included in the five solos, but was still incredibly important, is this teaching known as the priesthood of all believers. The Reformers believe that every Christian has a role to play in the life of the church. Every Christian has a gift of the Spirit to share with their brothers and sisters. Every Christian is a missionary to the world around them. We don't just sit back and watch the professionals do everything. We all play a role. And of course, every Christian, not just the pastors and the priests or the theologians and the monks, every Christian should be able to read God's word. Martin Luther said later, a simple layman armed with scripture is to be believed above a pope or a council without it. 
It is our job and privilege and joy to get in the word ourselves. But sadly, we haven't always done a great job of this, have we? A recent LifeWay research study found that only 45% of those who attend a church regularly read the Bible more than once a week. And over 40% of the people attending read their Bible occasionally, maybe once or twice a month. And almost one in five churchgoers say they never read the Bible. You hear those numbers, and it should be challenging and convicting for us to hear the stories of people like Wycliffe and Luther and Huss and Tyndale. Those people who were strangled and burned at stakes so that people like us could read God's word. And yet sometimes we can't even be bothered to pick it up. That should challenge us and that should convict us. So it's the church's job to preach the word. It's all of our jobs, all of our privilege to read the word. But then it's also our job and privilege to submit to the word. Every single one of us here, preachers, elders, staff, administration team, volunteers, or the congregant who doesn't volunteer in any way whatsoever, every single one of us who calls ourselves a Christian is called to submit to Scripture as our authority. No one in this church is above the authority of Scripture. Reading it is only half the battle. We're called to humbly submit to it. We don't just examine the Bible. We allow the Bible to examine us. We don't shape the Bible into what we want it to be. We allow it to mold and shape us into who God calls us to be. Now, at times when you come to Scripture, it may encourage you. It may lift you up. And at other times, it may knock you down a peg or two. But that's okay. That's what it's meant to do. God has given us scripture for our good, for all the things that Paul told Timothy, for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, rebuke, and encouragement. Now again, if you've been in our church for long, I hope that none of this is a surprise to you. But believe it or not, sola scriptura might be the most controversial idea of the Protestant Reformation. One of the biggest criticisms of this doctrine is that sola scriptura leaves biblical interpretation as one giant free-for-all. If everyone has a Bible and everyone can read it, how can we possibly come to agreement on what it says? Are we all just on our own to interpret the Bible however we see fit? One critic of the Protestant Reformation says this, If Protestantism is true, we all decide for ourselves what God's revelation means. If Protestantism is true, all we have is fallible opinions about infallible books. Is that person right? How should we respond? Well, arguably the biggest response that we can give, the most important response that we can give, is that Scripture is not our only authority, but it is our primary authority. Biblical interpretation isn't a free-for-all. Scripture alone doesn't mean we all get to come up with whatever interpretation we like best and run with it. 
there are other authorities that help us. We listen to wise, godly leaders in the church. Leaders who have proven their dedication to the word through the conduct of their lives. Leaders who have proven their love for Christ, proven their love for the church, and proven their love for us. We listen to leaders who have wrestled with scripture, even the hard parts, time and time again. But not only do we turn to leaders, we consider how the believers before us understood scripture. Another way of saying this is that if your interpretation of scripture overturns what believers have taught for thousands of years, you should tread very lightly. Now, of course, just because something is old doesn't mean it's good. It's true that Christians before us have gotten the Bible wrong. But conversely, just because something is new doesn't mean it's good either. We listen to those believers who came before us as we interpret Scripture. And then on top of that, God has given us the good gifts of reason and experience and even science. With those things, we can see how God created our physical world. We can learn about how he intends it to function. All of these things are good gifts of God and can be valuable sources of knowledge and understanding. But the true key of Sola Scriptura is that all of them fall under the authority of Scripture. If we had to choose between Scripture and one of those other authorities, we prioritize Scripture. Those other authorities can be good, and can be helpful and valuable, but they're still fallible. Meanwhile, Scripture isn't. So as Protestant Christians, Scripture should be the primary authority in our lives for what we believe. But I can't help but wonder, is it really? Or are there other authorities that we look to for truth and guidance? For example... Maybe the true governing authority for what we believe is not scripture, but it's some vague concept of common sense. We just do what we think is right in any given situation. We trust our brains and our guts when it comes to decision making. Now, the appeal of this, of course, is that we basically become our own authority and we like being in charge. But if you take scripture seriously you know that we need more than just our brains and our guts to know the truth. Or maybe the governing authority that we subscribe to isn't scripture, but pragmatism. We simply do whatever works in this world, whatever helps us get by. We believe and practice whatever makes us successful and healthy and prosperous by the world's standards, even if at times we have to throw scripture by the wayside. However, that's a very naive and short-sighted mentality. Just because something works or makes sense in this life doesn't mean that God approves of it. And after all, this life isn't all there is. Or maybe instead of scripture, we buy into some of the cute, feel-good pop psychology of our day and age. We follow our hearts, whatever that means. Well, if this is you, be careful. Because again, according to the pages of scripture, we are fallen creatures. Our hearts are corrupted by sin and we don't always want the right things. Sinful humanity has done many wicked deeds 
and the name of following our hearts. Now, of course, the appeal with that is that we do whatever feels good. But just because it feels good, it doesn't mean it's right by God's standards. Or maybe instead of scripture, our authority is following the crowd, the spirit of the age we live in. We approve all the things that everyone else approves of, and we reject the things that everyone else rejects. If there's a teaching of scripture you don't like, it's not hard to find some random blogger who's done enough interpretive gymnastics to make scripture line up more with the latest trend of our world. This authority is especially enticing if you like some parts of Scripture, but you like fitting in with the world more, and you lack the courage to take a stand. But what if we as Protestant Christians, what if we really do honor Scripture as our primary authority? Are we prepared for what that might mean? What if we take Scripture seriously when it comes to our finances and our possessions? Are we prepared to part with the things that other people worship and practice generosity? What if we actually believe what the Bible says about good and evil and human nature? I imagine that will change much of our outlook on society and even our attempts at progress. What if we actually look to Scripture for authority concerning our families? How will that change our marriages? How would it change the ways that we raise our children? What about questions of identity? Our world tells us that only we can decide who we are. God has no say. Nature has no say. Our physical bodies have no say. We are utterly autonomous. But are we prepared to acknowledge that we are created by God and that he has authority over us? And thus we are not free to define ourselves however we see fit. And of course, what if we take scripture seriously about sex? What if we actually take God's word into account when it comes to the beauties and the joys of sex, but also the restraints that God places upon it? To put it simply, if we really do take scripture as our primary authority, we better buckle up and we better be prepared to stick out from this world in some very obvious ways. Now, typically, we don't like the concept of authority these days, and that's nothing new. But authority, when exercised appropriately, can be a source of order and flourishing and peace and joy. God's authority over his people, specifically through the word he's given to us, is not a burden. It is liberating. When we understand who we are, people created by God, and when we understand the purpose that God created us for, his glory, and when we understand who he is, good and holy and powerful, we see the beauty and the freedom in submitting to his authority above every other authority. And God calls us to submit to his authority expressed in the pages of Scripture because he loves us and because he knows what is best for us. So we have this incredible privilege of reading God's Word. We have this joy of reading a book that God himself wrote. 
And I pray that we would never take that for granted. That it would never become routine or mundane. May we open his word regularly and never cease to be amazed at the grace he has shown us. Our world today is able to read scripture so easily or so frequently as we can. So I pray we wouldn't squander the opportunities that God has given us. As we close, look again to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. These verses should be reassuring to us as we endeavor to have Scripture as our primary authority. It should be encouraging to us to read that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So I pray that we would listen to it, that we would read it, that we would share it, because it is a gift of God that brings us joy, not just in this life, but joy in eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Again, it is incredible to think about the fact that we don't have to sit back and make all kinds of guesses about who you are or what you want. You have revealed yourself to us through your word. We can learn a lot about you through other sources of authority. We can learn a lot about you by looking at creation. We can learn a lot about you by reading other books and other thoughts that people have had throughout the pages of history. But the one true, perfect, and sufficient account of who you are is Scripture. So I pray that you would develop within us a deeper appreciation for it, a dedication to it, a love for Scripture. Develop that within our own individual lives and develop that here within this church. I pray that we would be a church that is dedicated to your word. Father, we love you. We thank you that your word tells us who Jesus is. Your word tells us what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so, Father, I pray that we would read that time and time again and be continually moved by the kindness you have shown us in Christ Jesus. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.